We're going to talk about choices. But uh, you know what a pop quiz is? It's a short test given without a warning. You don't have time to study for the right answers. You will get your answers to my questions by looking in the rearview mirror of your life over the last couple of weeks and months. So in a sense, you've already taken the quiz. But we're just going to talk about your answers. So don't put down what you wish (laughs) your answer was. Don't grade yourself on the curve. And don't look at your neighbor's answers and cheat. But you don't have to turn in your answers. You'll grade your own. I mentioned in a testimony uh, a little while back that someone from another state had texted me. I was going through a, it was a tough day. And this person texted me from another state and she ended up talking to me about resisting or surrendering. It was just, I think it was a title of a book. And she said, you might think about trying to find this book, Resisting or Surrendering. And I started thinking about all the vast amount of choices that we make, that we're confronted with. Um, Everybody in life, Christian or not, has questions, has whys in the road. You know, Greg, you mentioned it, your brother, you know, receive or reject. There's kind of this, this or the that situation. Everything, Everything in life is. And it's usually two choices. I could do this or that. I'm free to decide. I could take this road or I could take this road. And there's many examples in the word about the this or the that. In Genesis 1, it says God saw the darkness and he said, I'm going to make light. Adam and Eve were soon confronted with good and evil. And it started before that with God and the devil. You know, there's life and death. There's obedience and disobedience. Wisdom and foolishness. Christ and the Antichrist. Flesh and spirit. Love and hate. Good and evil. True and false. Right or wrong. Freedom and bondage. Work and play. Blessing and cursing. Wickedness and righteousness. Pride and humility. Peace and war. The wide and the narrow. Straight and the crooked, Broadway or the narrow way, right or left, cold or hot, up and down, rich or poor, beginning and the end, master and slave, health and sickness, for and against, faith and doubt. The whole sermon isn't this. Heaven and hell, liberal and conservative, and on and on. And on. You know, I know I've overdone it a little bit, but I'm wanting to make a point. We all make decisions, sometimes hourly, if not by the minute. And we're making good decisions or we're making bad decisions. And these decisions that we make all the time determine or are a result of our spiritual health, our state of mind. Are we choosing what God says about the situation 
or what we say or feel about something. You know, Brother Tom used to, he used to make a big deal. By the way, three years ago tomorrow is when he went home with, to be with the Lord. I was just thinking about that. I still haven't forgiven him, but. <laughs> he said, choices define us. Who are we? Because good choices show up in our lives down the road. Bad choices show up in our lives down the road. And choices separate Christians from others. And this, in this statement, choices are powerful. And choices have consequences. In 1 Kings 18, 24, Elijah asked the people at Mount Carmel, you all know the story, the, all the people of Baal were there, and, and he had called the Christians up, and they were going to have a sacrifice, and whoever sent down heaven, fire from heaven, that's who they were going to serve. And, and Elijah said, how long will you halt between two opinions? This He didn't say, how, how long will you... Um, halt between five opinions. It's usually the this or the that. How long will you halt between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow him. But if Baal be God, then follow him. Then what does it say? And the people answered him not a word. He put before them two choices and they, they had no answer because they had a divided heart. They couldn't make a choice. You know, we live in a world where absolutes are not very popular. The standards of the Bible are scorned by the word, by the world as a, as a whole anymore. You know, they're more gray than there used to be, even in the church. When the word is declared, it's labeled hate speech anymore by the world. You don't even have to give an opinion. Just stand up and read it, and you're a bigot. You're narrow-minded. You just read it, and you're given a label. If you believe you're on the narrow path, you can look around, and there's not very many on it anymore. You know, it says, few there be that find it, few that'll make the choices necessary to be on that narrow path. The Broadway is so much easier. Brother Tom said one time that, the, that you can get the things necessary for the Broadway at a cheap discount store. You can get the things that you need for the Broadway at a cheap discount store. You can get them, if you work at Dollar General, sorry, you can get them at Dollar General. The narrow way will cost you a lot more. And that is a profound statement and truer the more closer to the end that we get. The, the narrow way will cost you more. 
And if you think the world is going to pat you on the back when you make decisions based on the teachings from the word, as opposed to the way that most people make decisions, you're on the wrong train. You got on the wrong train. If you think the world is going to pat you on the back when you say, the Bible says, they're not going to pat you on the back. So we're going to talk about our past while, looking over our shoulders, looking in the rearview mirror, as I want to call it. Um, and you'll get your, your answers by looking at yourself over the past while, how you've reacted to different situations, circumstances, what you've been faced with. Thomas is going to help us with uh, questions. I'm going to put the questions on up here so you can think about them. And you guessed it, they are going to be either or answers. So Thomas, if you can fire that thing up. We used to have an overhead. If you're 25 or younger, you don't even know what an overhead projector is. Probably old man. But (laughs) 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 so I had to get somebody else to do our PowerPoint. (laughs) You can't read my writing anyway, so I thought, what good would that be? The first question. My thoughts were about what God says about my situation or I worried about what I was going to do about my situation. You're going to check one of the other blocks. There's nothing new about this teaching. We've heard it from the beginning, heard it from way back. You know the verse. We've been taught well. Proverbs 23, 7. For as a man thinketh in his heart... So is he. We've heard that our thoughts are the seeds we plant in the garden of our mind that will produce the harvest which we will reap. I had someone in my shop a couple weeks ago, and she had a friend that was a nurse, and somehow we were talking about how powerful the mind is in relationship to health or, or life. And she said she knew personally of someone who was sure that they were sick. And they kept going back for a bunch of tests, and they kept telling her, there's nothing wrong with you. And she'd say, I'm sure there's something wrong with me. And she continued to believe there was, and she ended up on life support. And there was never anything wrong with her. Satan works through the mind. If we could see into the spiritual realm, it'd be interesting to see how many of our thoughts, if we could see that thought was from the enemy. The enemy planted that thought. Because we say, oh, I was thinking about, well, were you really? Or did you just go along with it? What did you do when that thought entered your mind, when it was tempting to be a depressing or a a discouraging thought? Do you see the worst in things, or do you combat those things with the word, with God's promises? You don't always always have to express out loud that the thought is from the devil, but how quickly do you reject it and say, I'm not going to think that thought. God says this about that situation. You know, or, or when somebody says something, you think, oh, I wonder if that's what that twinge in my side really is. You know, when, 
It's not, it's not that, I mean, and the 99% chance that it's not that, but that's what you, you end up toying with. Do we immediately think about a verse that combats that thought? I don't know if you've ever been to a store and they, they have money raised, they're trying to raise some money, and you drop this penny in that slot and it goes around this funnel-looking thing, you know, it goes faster and faster and faster. That's kind of how our thoughts are in our head. You know, you drop it in there and it starts rolling around. You can grab it. You can stop it anytime it's rolling around in there. Until it gets to the bottom, it gets faster, it drops in. You don't know where it goes. You're, you're, that thought just dropped in your heart. And it's hard to get it out of there. Get the penny out while it's rolling around in there and get rid of it. When you think negative about a situation, it rolls around in your mind and you weigh the maybes and you weigh the what ifs and fairly quickly your thought is about the negative, about what's really not going on. Do you think you won't have enough money to pay the bills? Or do you think your children will get in trouble? Or do you think you can't please your boss at work? Or is the thought ever entered your head, your business is going to dry up and you'll be on the streets. Or no one likes me, so I'm not going to engage in conversations with anybody. On and on and on. You know, we've all heard of placebos. They are fake pills, but the people that are taking them were told they would have a certain reaction. And they did. In one study, people were given a placebo and they told them it was a stimulant. And so they checked their their heart rates went up, their blood pressure went up, and their reaction speeds improved. The same pill was given to another group, and they were told it was to help them get to sleep. And they experienced the opposite result of the first group. They all got sleepy, and they took a nap. What was the difference? It was the mind. It's what they thought. Our, th- our thoughts affect us physically and spiritually. You know, Brother John mentioned recently that Satan is an identity thief. He tries to convince us that we are someone other or something other than who we really are, than what the really Bible says, than really what the Bible says about our situation. Have you ever had to battle in your mind that you were saved? Even when you know you've repented, you're walking in the light that you know to do, and you're doing it the best you can, did you ever get up one day and say, I think I doubt, I think I doubt my salvation today. Yeah, that's a good thing to do today. I've been having a rough time of it recently. I don't particularly feel saved today. I've been going through some rough things, so yeah, yeah, I think I doubt that. Do you think that's from your mind? (laughs) Do you think that you just got up and decided, that's what I'm going to do today? Do we come against that thought or try to reason it out with the devil? Do we battle those thoughts with a scripture verse like maybe Romans 8, 8, 8.1? There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Do we put on... The garment of truth. Do we put 
Do we wrap our waist with the garment of truth? Do we put on the armor to fight those things? So how have you been thinking for the last while? Are you defeated in your mind before the situation even presents itself to you? So what have your thoughts been this past week? You decide. You check the box. Okay, that's the first question. The next question is, do we speak what the word says about a situation or do we confess all the negative? So what has come out of your mouth in the last while? And you know the scriptures for this one. Proverbs 18.21 Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Or Proverbs 6 Thou art snared by the words of your mouth. Or Matthew 12.34 Out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. These scriptures didn't come from a man or somebody who just made them up. They are divinely inspired words that are truth. Thy word is truth. Have we outgrown a positive confession? Have we matured past that? When we first moved to Painted Stone Farm, I was in charge. I took care of the horses, and people would come over a lot of times on Sundays and ride horse. And John, you're going to. This was 29 years ago this summer. You know who you rode? Mo. We would always put John on Mo, and we were riding a horse one afternoon, and we we started talking about positive confessions. And John said something that I never forgot. I'd heard it a lot. I've heard it probably a hundred times before, but he said it in a way that it really, like Tom used to say, plunk. It hit me. And he said, a positive confession is simply saying what God said about the situation. And I thought, how much sense that made. We were talking about how people view us when we say, when we give a positive confession about you know, circumstances that don't look like, that don't line up with what we're confessing. All we're doing is confessing what God says about the situation. And I don't know about, I haven't heard a whole lot of them recently. I haven't heard a whole lot of them out of this mouth. And, and, and I got to the, and I was thinking, you know, about that. Have we matured past that? Have we just kind of, just kind of forgotten that. You know, we live in a time in a country where the negative is blown way out of proportion. <clears throat> it's all some people talk about. <clears throat> the news might as well be called What's Not Right About the Nation. It's a new station, WNRN, What's Not Right About the Nation. When is the last time they reported that 99.1% of the population is not in jail? Or that 98% of the population is not addicted to drugs? Or that 97% of the population are not gay? Nobody, that's never thought of. It's the negative. What is the fascination about car wrecks, deaths, drug bust, protest marches, political unrest, and divisiveness every half hour, 24 hours a day? What's the fascination? The word confess means to agree with or to speak the same language. 
I remember also Brother Tom used to say when he was counseling people, he would ask for three verses that relate to that situation. That's what he wanted them to confess. That's what he wanted them to think about. That's what he wanted them to believe about this situation. Are we confessing to each other what the word says about our, our situation, what we're believing for? When the devil comes and suggests all the negative, it's like a thief or a robber coming and trying to take your things. You know, when people come to your house and try to take your things, you have no problem saying, you can't take that, that's mine. Or I've, I've often, in a grocery store, you haven't even bought the food yet, and somebody thinks their cart is your cart, you know, and they say, hey, wait, 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 that, that's mine, that's mine. You know, we don't, have, you know, we lock our cars when we go, well, some of us lock our houses when we go on vacation, some of us don't, some of us don't lock our cars, but... I mean, there's locks because we don't want people to take what's ours. And we don't mind telling them. We keep people from taking what's ours. People kill people for taking things that are not theirs. Are we as possessive of the things that God has given us as we are about somebody taking a pencil that's ours. Scripture tells us that Satan is a robber and a thief. So you need to tell him, don't take my cart. It's not yours. So thinking back on the last while, what has come out of your mouth regarding situations? Do we major on the negative? Ouch. Or did you line up with what you said over the past while with what God says about your situation? So how are you doing so far? I mean, obviously, you're going to want your checks on the left, your left, okay? <laughs> if you're passing, the checks are on the left, not are on the right. Next question. Are we seeking the kingdom or are, or are we taking too much thought for tomorrow? And let's turn to Matt, let's turn to Matthew 6:31. Let's read this like it's the first time we've ever read it. Matthew uh, 6:31 to 34. It says, "Therefore take no thought, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink?" Or whither withal shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knoweth that you have need of all of these things. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Take therefore no thought for tomorrow. For the morrow shall take thought of the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. So think back over the last while. Has our mind been filled with the cares of the world? You know, I know most of us men have businesses and it requires a lot of time. You know, you're, you're planning, you're scheduling, you're talking to people, you give quotes, you pay the bills, you do the work. 
But do we think about it all evening and half the night? Or the ladies, are you so are you so consumed with the domestic things that you're responsible for that God just kind of gets crowded out? We've had a lot of sermons recently about seeking God, seeking his presence. So when you have an evening or some uh, free time, what do you do with it? Where do you let your mind take you? Verse 31, it says, um, wherefore, take no thought, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? For after all these things do the Gentiles think. That's the Gentile way of living, of taking thought for the things of the world. And why? Because they have no promise of tomorrow. They don't have the promise of a Heavenly Father supplying those needs. Not like we do. To the Gentiles, it's eat, drink, and be merry. Not like we do. But for us, we seek a heavenly home. In verse 32, God doesn't deny that we need those things. That, we don't, that Christians don't need those things that they seek after. He doesn't deny that we need food and clothes. The right state of our hearts is to seek those things above. And God will willingly and abundantly give us the things we need, of which the unbelievers have to strive after to get. It's a great plan. He is telling us not to be anxious for tomorrow. When we think about and are anxious for tomorrow, it says tomorrow, you know, it has the cares of its own. If we think about it today and live through it tomorrow, we do everything twice. Why, why go through the anxiety of tomorrow and then go through tomorrow and go through the same things that we worried about? It is implied that tomorrow will have its cares and to anxiously anticipate them only makes us live through them twice. Take no thought. It doesn't say don't think about tomorrow. It is saying don't be anxious for tomorrow. Don't worry about it. Planning for tomorrow is time well spent. Worrying about tomorrow is wasted time. Don't let worries about tomorrow affect your relationship with God today. It is implied that the seekers of the kingdom and his righteousness, that equals all of your temporal needs being met. It's as simple as that. We were once on the unbeliever's side seeking those things because no one else was going to supply them for us. Now we're on the believer's side. That says our Father knows our needs and he will get those things for us so we don't have to be anxious. It's a good deal. Who wouldn't sign up for that? All that's required for this present life is promised us. So what has occupied your mind over the past while? Is it anxious thoughts or seeking the kingdom? And because of that, we have peace about the next day. I think when you think back, you know which side you're on. You know which box to check. 
Okay, the next question on the quiz is a big subject, and I can only touch on a little bit of it. But as you look in, again in the rearview mirror of your life, have you grown in your relationship to God? Or have you become stale and lukewarm in that relationship? I think abiding in the vine adequately describes what I'm talking about here. And by abiding, I mean, as the Vine's Dictionary describes, continuing perseverance to remain, constant residence, to remain in place rather than leaving it, cling unto it. Are we drawing from the Vine more or less? According to John 15, it's the only way to bear fruit. We are spiritually fruitful in direct proportion to our relationship to the vine. If you want a branch to produce fruit, we don't lay it close to the vine or we don't lay it close to the church. I mean, the vine. You don't lay it there. It's got to be attached. It's got to be plugged in. We have got to be plugged in, and that requires some discipline. We have a devotional book at home, and in it, E. Stanley Jones has some good things to say about this. He said, conversion is a gift and an achievement. It is the act of a moment and it is the work of a lifetime. It is the act of a moment and a work of a lifetime. You cannot attain salvation by disciplines. That's a gift. But you cannot retain it without disciplines. Discipline is the fruit of conversion, not the root. We trust as if the whole thing depended on God, and we work as if the whole thing depended on us. And I'm not talking about, you know, your works save you. I'm talking about work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He says that the best man that ever lived on our planet illustrates this receptivity and response rhythm. He did these things by habit, speaking of Jesus. He stood up to read, as was his custom. He read the word. We are cleansed by the reading of the word. And in John 15, it says, now you are clean or pruned through the word which I have spoken unto you. Jesus read the word. He knew the word. Second thing he, he did, he went out into the mountain to pray, as was his custom. This writer gives a quote, and I'm going to read the quote first and then tell you who said it. I have been driven many times to my knees by an overwhelming conviction that I had nowhere else to go. My own conviction and that of those around me seemed insufficient for the day. I'm going to read it one more time. I have been driven many times to my knees by an overwhelming conviction 
that I had nowhere else to go. My own conviction and that of those around me seemed insufficient for the day. It was Abraham Lincoln. And I don't know everything about his standing with God, but I thought that, was, that quote was so good. This writer also says, when prayer fades out, power fades out. We are as spiritual as we are prayerful. No more and no less. So are we spending the time to seek God? You know, I think we can seek God by being in the spirit as we go about our daily routine. You know, surely our life is not compartmentalized into, well, I sought God between six and eight because I was reading the word and praying and the rest of the times I was living my life. I don't think, you know, I don't think it's like that. You need to be in the spirit as you are making your decisions, as you walk through your day, doing your daily chores, seeking God is being obedient in our daily routine, in the choices that we make. So as you look back again in the past several days and weeks, you know if you've been seeking God. Or are you consumed with seeking things, seeking stuff, the carnal things of life? So the next question Do I look for the needs or ways to minister to people in the body that I meet? Or am I only concerned about myself and have the attitude, someone else will meet that need? Let's turn to John 13. John 13, 34, and 35. And these are Jesus' words. He said, A new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another, as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love one to another. Now, loving one another was not the new commandment. Leviticus 19 says, Love your neighbor as yourself. But what was new was to love each other as Christ loved them. And how was that? He laid down his life. He gave his life for them. It was a whole new level of love. Have you laid down some of your precious time for someone else lately? Have you spent time in prayer for someone else lately? Have you given some of your hard-earned money to someone lately who you knew had a need, who you found out had a need? As Christ loving us cost him something, so will our love for each other cost us something. 
As I was studying this, again, I was amazed at how unlike God views successes or success in the way that we view success, about how God is impressed with the small things of life. We're so noticeable of the outward appearance of everything. And God is so concerned about the hearts of people. So like in the business world, you know, we look for someone on our team who is well-trained and schooled from the most respected institutions with high achievements and grades. But in God's kingdom, in 1 Corinthians 1.27 says, he's chosen the foolish, the base, the weak, and despised things of the world to be on his team. We would pick someone who has some financing and some success record of success in the financial world. But Jesus was impressed with the widow that gave the two mites. More than all the rich people. Everybody went past that treasury that morning. Some maybe gave a hundred, maybe gave a thousand. They weren't recorded in the eternal word of what they did. He noticed one lady gave Two mites. The one who gave the least made the most impression on Jesus that day. He said that she cast in more than all the rest who had cast into the treasury. He wasn't concerned about the amount given, but he wanted the one with the willing heart to be on his team. We've all heard of the corporate ladder and people stress out to get up the next rung to the ladder, to get up to the top. God's ladder is completely flipped. The one on the bottom rung with a good heart is at the top of God's ladder. We would pick the well-dressed person to be on the cover of our church directory. (laughs) But Jesus said, no, put the poor person with vile raiment in the front row. We can't be partial to outward looks. You know, in all these things, I see God looking, noticing the small things. The small things that people do because he wants obedient hearts. So if you see a need that you can help fill in another member's life, don't ever think, well, it's such a small thing. They'll never notice it if I don't. They won't miss it if I neglect to supply that need, that prayer, that word of encouragement, that whisper of comfort. Oh, yeah, I forgot to do that. Oh, that's okay. God notices. So has your contribution to the body been felt by anyone? It's been noticed by anyone? Has God heard a prayer from your lips for a brother or sister in the last while? So how are you doing? So this morning, it's, you know, we've looked at the this 
or the that of things, it's a good time to pause and reflect our attitudes, our actions for the last little while, and maybe we need to make some corrections in the course of our life. You know, hopefully this morning has caused us to think about how God sees our obedience in light of his word. He is not silent on the day-to-day choices that we have to make. As far as which road to take when we get to those whys that we come to every day. So by your answers, I think you'll be able to tell if you're building your rock, your house on the solid rock or the sand. Again, we have two choices. We have two options. I want to turn to one more scripture, Matthew 7, 24 and 25. It's the end of the Sermon on the Mount, and he's just talked about all of these things in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 7, starting in verse 24. I am in 6:24. Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat upon that house and it fell not for it was founded upon a rock. Being on the rock means a hearing and responding disciple. Practicing obedience becomes our solid foundation, our solid rock. He says if we do the things in the Sermon on the Mount, it will keep us when the storms of life come our way. And he teaches on what what we call the Beatitudes, He teaches on salt of the earth, on anger, on lust, on divorce, taking vows, retaliation, loving your enemies, giving, prayer, fasting, money, worry, and criticizing other other people. When you look at these things, and he's teaching about them, it's so different than how society does things. But he says... If you do these things, it will save you when the storms of life come our way. That's an amazing promise. Has anyone felt like the rain has descended? The floods have overwhelmed you? The winds have changed? The winds of change have blown you over? We have a life jacket right here, right here in these verses. Jesus just threw it out to you. Grab it. I don't know how it happens. How does it happen that when you do his do what he said in the Sermon on the Mount and you're up against a storm in life, he says you'll stand, you won't fall. That's a promise. That's a pretty amazing promise. We need to grab onto it. He just said he said it would. So That's the test. If you're riding a bicycle and you have a flat tire, maybe it's time to stop and fix it. If you're sailing a boat 
Maybe it's time to hoist the sail. If you're riding a horse, maybe it's time to stop and take the burr out from underneath the saddle. If you're flying a plane, maybe it's time to take off. If you're driving a car, maybe it's time for a tune-up. If you're on a train, maybe it's time to put it back on the tracks. If you're in a canoe, maybe it's time to put your oar in. Let's get going, and let's make good decisions.